0: We want to believe that someone can beat the odds. We want to believe that doctors don't know everything, which of course is true. Awaiting a miracle is something that I think in our culture is very big. Sunita Puri is a palliative medicine physician
1: at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Her work requires her to be on intimate terms with mortality and the limits of the body. Sunita has described what the practice of palliative medicine looks like in her memoir, That Good Night. I think the book should be essential reading. Not only is it a beautiful account of a physician finding and making sense of her calling, but it makes plain that good medicine is not always about saving lives and finding cures. It's also about helping people confront what is taking place inside the body when things start to go very wrong. Sunita writes about a young man, a 31-year-old she calls Jack, who had a series of thorny medical problems and for the past six years had lived on a ventilator. He was unable to breathe, eat, or urinate on his own. He could open his eyes, but couldn't speak. And making matters worse, he had become prone to infections, and antibiotics were no longer doing the trick. He had taken so many through the years that he had become resistant to
0: almost all of them. His parents were devout Catholics, loved their son, would do anything for him, and had a really hard time understanding that his death would come from something like an infection that we think is treatable. People think infections, just take an antibiotic, you'll be
1: fine. Jack was in the hospital with pneumonia, and his doctors worried he would develop an infection. And at this point, for Jack, this could be fatal. So they turned to Sunita for help in talking with his parents. In her book, Sunita writes that the resident in charge of Jack's care told her, I don't think they get how sick their son is. They keep talking about how a miracle is going to happen, and he's going to get better.
0: The father had lived through something that no one expected him to live through, and he used himself as an example often. And part of the issue is helping people to see the difference between their miracle and the very low possibility of a similar miracle in another situation.
1: For Jack's family, there is faith in science, but also faith in the human spirit to overcome. And part of the role of the
0: palliative care team was to ease them toward a different reality. I was in training at the time, but watching this remarkable, remarkable attending have these conversations where she talked about what miracles mean— how they're called miracles because they're extremely rare and unexpected, and ask them, what is the miracle that you're hoping for?
1: It was a horrible ordeal for the family. But Sunita says the case was painful for her as well. In part because modern medicine, much like society at large, tries to keep death at an arm's length.
0: We've taken dying and put it behind the curtain of hospitals or nursing homes for the most part. And I think because we don't know that dying can still look very much like living and that it should look very much like living if we're doing a good job taking care of people's quality of life, we miss the opportunity to actually have conversations with our patients about what dying is. She
1: was able to help the family understand that in the event that Jack became so sick that his heart stopped, CPR would only prolong his dying. But still.
0: Not long after he left the hospital, he came right back in cardiac arrest and died in the ER getting CPR. And so that case was hard for a lot of reasons because you think you've gotten through to somebody, but at the end of the day, when people are facing enormous loss their decisions change and it has nothing to do with you and I thought it did I felt like I had failed that young man and my attending again this brilliant brilliant doctor said to me this has nothing to do with you and it has nothing to do with me and sometimes things shake out in ways we'll never really understand and learning to accept that was kind of my own lesson that, for example, a surgeon learns that you cannot save every life. And I realize I cannot save every death.
1: In some ways, we've been talking about miracles this entire season. The immortalists and technologists trying to beat old age, debility, and death, they're all chasing the extraordinary. Many say it's about having faith in science— But science here strikes me as a sort of code for the incredible, as a way of describing the shimmering mirage of the future. For Jack's family, it's about hoping for a more relatable miracle. They don't want their young son to die. They want all the doctors to be wrong and for God to intervene. It's a different wish, but it seems to me that the illusion of control is the same. The impulse to resist and rail against death How much of that is because we're appalled by how little we actually command? The relentless social narrative is that we can drive our destiny, whether through faith or progress or heeding superstition. But I think that's just another thread in the story.
0: Life is also subject to the laws of things beyond our control, whether that's spirit or happenstance or bad luck— or anything along those lines. And when we really wanna try to control everything in our lives, I think that we are missing out on the perspective that we have to have a certain amount of faith that what we think is in our control may never be. And how do we find a way of accepting that too? And it is very painful. What I'm learning is that what it means to accept life and to live life well is to really know that you can only do what you can do. And it's kind of like the serenity prayer in AA, where you need to understand the things you can control and the things you can't, and you have to be able to know the difference. And I think knowing the difference is the life's work.
1: I'm Katherine Rowland and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is Seeking. Today, we're far from the world of immortality and radical life extension. We're in a place where the future doesn't unfurl endlessly through time. Instead, it's immediate. It's about hours, days. And we're looking at the seams where our stories meet reality. Today, we hear from two professionals who labor around death, I reached out to them in the hopes that they could offer some wisdom about what it all means. If we can't be spared, is there some secret to at least going with grace?
0: We are actually very small players in what happens in our lives and in the universe. Nothing is promised, not even 10 minutes from now. For most of this
1: season, we've been speaking with people trying to take an outsized role in what happens in their lives. People who see mortality as a sort of concession, a giving up and giving in. That if we don't fight against our looming end, we're somehow less enamored of life. Sunita makes the opposite case that to really embrace life demands that on some level we come to grips with its bounds, that we accept death as part of the package.
0: I don't know what humanity would be without mortality. I think that that sense that at some level we all know that time will run out makes us more apt to wanna do the things that matter. And that realization comes for us at different times. And I think that too is part of being human. The quest to live forever is truly one that I have absolutely no capability of understanding because I think it's an example of man wanting to dominate nature and an unwillingness to to see that nature will always win against humanity. It will always be the one to make the call on our bodies and there when their time is up. And I think it's kind of, to be very honest, kind of sad that people are using their time and energy and money to chase this sort of quest. I think it amplifies and justifies a lot of the anxiety and fear people already have about death and dying and debility and suffering and loss of dignity.
1: The aim of palliative medicine, Sunita tells me, is to relieve suffering but it's also to help people make decisions that often touch on the very meaning of life.
0: Palliative care fundamentally is concerned with relieving the suffering, physical, emotional, and spiritual, that people experience when they're living with a very serious illness. The illness doesn't have to be terminal. It doesn't have to be incurable, but it has to be serious enough that we're not sure what your life is going to look like or what you want it to look like. Traditional medicine
1: often focuses on preserving or prolonging life at all costs, no matter that the quality of that life may suffer as it continues. As a result, palliative medicine is often consigned to the last and most complicated stages of care. That's when people are hoping for the miraculous, for divine intercession, or for some new and powerful therapy. And Sunita's role is to enter
0: into that space of pain and hope, and to communicate urgency. You have got to be the calm in the storm, because everyone else is going to freak out. And I need to go to that place of intimacy quickly, because I'm going to have to ask invasive questions, or questions they've never been asked before.
1: It's questions like, what people understand about their condition. What they may want as their body begins to lose some of its familiar functions or who they want to be
0: with. And I will have to tell them things in ways that they can understand in kitchen table language because the stakes are very high. And when people say they don't want to talk about this, I validate that and I remind them the stakes are very high and I have to explain why. And they have got to trust me. We think about all these domains of suffering, whether it's treating cancer pain or helping people answer the question, what will my life mean now that I am impaired by my disease? And we try to name it and really look at the suffering to help people live better lives. Helping
1: people live better lives. Other practitioners might phrase this differently and say this is about helping people who are suffering have a better death. How can they reach their end with as much ease as possible? But that's not Sunita. She draws a firm distinction between the moment of death, that's just the moment when the heartbeat stops, and the process of dying, which is taking place when we're still very much alive. And that's why I'm talking with Sunita on one of her rare days off from the hospital. She's sitting in her kitchen with thick, dark hair and earnest eyes. Her dog occasionally tries to chime in when I ask what this encounter with reality looks like. The
0: grasping for control is a very human effort to keep things contained and keep things predictable. But I also think we live in a society where certain ideas are promulgated. Like, if you work hard enough, you'll get anything you want. Or if you fight hard enough, you can overcome the disease. We all want that in some aspect of our lives or another. But you're kind of sacrificing trust in something bigger when you're always grasping for control. Medicine will never win over nature. Our minds and our intentions will never win over nature. And that's a really hard realization to come to. It's difficult in the extreme, but Sunita
1: says the fight to dominate and dictate our circumstances, it can take
0: away from the experience of life. It was very hard for me in my training. It's very hard for me in other contexts. But I think knowing that we can only do what we can do and grasping for control, I think, potentially makes the living of life less spontaneous and less open to mystery. Miracles may be rare, but Sunita's work still
1: traffics in the realm of mystery. She is a Hindu, and for her that means an acceptance of impermanence, a recognition that what's around us is not necessarily real. So she approaches life from a spiritual tradition, but in addition to that, sees her work as being about more than medicine. It's a spiritual calling. You've spoken about the presence of spirit. Can you tell me about how you have encountered that in the hospital?
0: I've encountered it personally, and I've encountered it as a feeling in a room with a patient or during a family meeting. And there are times in meetings where I know that What I'm saying is coming from somewhere, from a wisdom way beyond me, because ultimately I think so much of what I do is sacred work, and it has to be met with something beyond me. And in the room with families, sometimes you can just feel that there is something there that is beyond everyone, And it's hard to describe, but there's rooms where the energy shifts so dramatically sometimes that you know it has nothing to do with anyone in the room, and it has something to do with a force beyond us that's holding us all in that space.
1: When you work with people at the end of their lives, sometimes situations are inexplicable. But Sunita has noticed some patterns.
0: I encounter spirit in really mysterious ways. For example, if a patient starts telling me, oh yeah, you know, I was talking to my mom yesterday and the mom has died and passed on, then I know that they have a very high chance of dying soon. And I think that's another powerful moment if you're in the room, especially when they're like, oh, hi dad, or whatever the situation is, then you know that someone has been sent as a guide to them, to make sure they're not going to be as afraid. And the last thing I'll mention is sometimes I can't get someone off my mind and I'll find out later that that time I couldn't get them out of their mind was the time they died. Not to get too emotional, but sometimes I do feel that the people I've lost are with me. To
1: me, one of the most sacred aspects to her work is simply the ability to show up for someone in their suffering.
0: So what do the dying need from us? At a very basic level, I think we have a hard time seeing that someone is dying or seeing their suffering, seeing the compromise of dignity, asking them about it, and really being willing to hear the answers. And so I think, in general, what the dying as a diverse group need is to be seen and heard.
1: That state of wanting to be seen and heard is as universal as death itself. We tend to avoid it because it can be so excruciating. But when we offer it up, it can change even the darkest moments.
2: They were lifers. They had been there for quite a while, and they had seen a lot of death. And they had seen, they had helped their cellmates die without any support, and they wanted more skills around it. So their motivation was to just learn, to be able to show up for each other more fully.
1: That's after the
2: break. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell.
0: I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now.
1: Lady Bird Morgan describes her work as helping people move toward natural conclusions.
2: What I've come to realize is that what I offer is a container for people to navigate thresholds to actually pay attention to someone's humanity in the moment so that they feel that they can move in the direction that they want to go organically next, whatever that means.
1: Lady Bird is a registered nurse and social worker, as well as counselor and educator in Northern California. And much like Sunita, a big part of her role is helping people negotiate the end of their lives. She sees that process as an opportunity for self-expression. It's not necessarily about acceptance and grace and going gently into the night. It's also about creating space if people are inclined to rage
2: against the dying of the light. A lot of times, especially in medical settings, when you have a chronic illness or you have a terminal diagnosis you start going down a specific pathway, and all of your questions and inquiry tend to be focused around where the medical establishment wants you to go and where your family and loved ones want you to go. And your voice gets smaller and smaller. So what I'm interested in, not so much having somebody feel good or better or a happy death or the perfect death or no death. I'm really driven by people becoming themselves. She
1: went through social work training and became a counselor, then became a nurse. All in the name, she says, of getting
2: to a deeper level of human connection. I don't think I ever thought, oh, I'm going to go heal people, but I did want to show up.
1: And Lady Bird has found that if you really want to show up for someone, if you really listen and attend, then you are going to confront uncertainty you're going to have to give up the impulse to control the situation or to even seek
2: out a reason when things don't look the way you want them to. You might not need to make sense of anything in order to show up. It didn't stop me from trying to, and even now, wanting to make sense of things. I haven't stopped wanting that desire or looking for things or looking for patterns or clues to like, oh, it's all going to make sense now, I get it. But there's like a core in me that is like, oh yeah, we're on a planet revolving around a ball of fire. You have no idea. You have no idea. It's a lot of really compelling stories running around, but it's probably not what you think it is. (laughs) It's
1: human nature to want to make sense of our world, to make it safe and orderly, for ourselves and for our loved ones. And so it makes sense that we invest a lot in the idea that death is purposeful. And that the dying ultimately come to terms with their ends. That the whole thing concludes with some great gasp of resolution. But to Ladybird, that's just another story.
2: Are we really afraid of dying? Or are we really just wanting to stay alive? There's so much focus on people, especially when you have a terminal diagnosis, that you're supposed to accept your death and come to terms with all these things. But it's perfectly fine, as far as I'm concerned, to not want to die. You're still going to die. So you don't have to actually want to die in order to die. You don't have to just wrap it all up in a nice little package and say, look, here are my last wishes, everything's good, and that's all lovely but it's not required. And some of what gets missed in those pieces are the other parts of us that actually wanted to be seen and heard, the subtle places of longing in us that also want to have a voice before we go.
1: Lady Bird has carried her interest in that subtle voice to one of the most troubled quarters of American society, the prison system.
2: There's many ways that dying in prison is pretty awful. You're now alone. There is no visitation. You are isolated in a cell. It's horribly uncomfortable and isolating and scary. No family, no nothing.
1: Along with the actress and prison reform advocate, Sandy Fish, Lady Bird is the co-founder of the Humane Prison Hospice Project. Fish was frustrated by the state of dying in prisons. She has said that the last breath of an incarcerated person affects the whole community.
2: Sandy was really focused on making sure that people did not die badly in prison, and beautiful intention. I recognized pretty quickly on that I was really there because of the humanity that was developing for everybody involved. Being able to access your humanity for the men and women that get to provide care, some of them possibly for the first time in many, many years.
1: The original idea was to administer hospice services directly to dying inmates. But they came to the realization that end-of-life caregiving should be done by those who get it. Today, the organization trains fellow prisoners to be caregivers and witnesses to grief. Their work primarily takes place in San Quentin Prison, just north of San Francisco. But they aim to take it more broadly across the state of California. The premise might sound straightforward, teaching incarcerated individuals to tend to the suffering of their fellows. But it's actually pretty radical. Because even though death is increasingly common in prisons, owing in part to longer sentencing and the growing number of older inmates, it's not something that most prisons have the tools or staff to address in a compassionate manner. What did the training look like? What specifically were you teaching inmates in this process?
2: We did the same hospice training that you would get on the outside. How to talk about difficult conversations, what your own vision of death and dying was, what the realities for them are inside, like what can you do with your body, what can't you do, what are your choices, the different signs and symptoms of end of life. These are the sounds you're going to hear, and this is what a person might get confused. And what was really lovely was most of the people in the class that I taught You know, they had had a life. They had been at home when a grandmother had died or a cousin had died. And they remember that person reaching out or that person being confused or some of the things that we talked about they could go, oh yeah, now I I remember that. And it helped them actually reconcile some of the past as well as prepare for the future. It's the same types of skills. It's the same human that's dying, right? So
1: it's a radical premise that no one should be denied end of life care. And implicit to that is that dignity and compassion and death are fundamental to our humanness, even when humans are confined to the shadows of society. Lady Bird, along with other observers, points out that the experience of dying in prison is cut through with assumptions of worth. Dying inmates are often treated as criminals first, deprived. What might be a desire for connection or communication in their last days is often shoved aside. Instead, they face further isolation. For instance, if you're sick, you might get taken to the prison medical center.
2: You don't get to see your cellmates or people that you've been eating meals with for 20, 30 years. You're now alone. If things are worse, you might get taken to the hospital. If you get whisked to the hospital where that does happen, you are chained to the bed and you are chained until you die with a guard outside of your room. Maybe you get visits from your family, but it probably depends on where you are and what county and if you even have anybody nearby and what the nature of your crime was. There's also the third way, the more common way. The third way, which I think happens more than we like to acknowledge, is that people die in their cells And they die without any medical care because they don't want to be away from their cellmate, who is maybe the closest person in their life. And so they wait until the very last moment, and then it will be a man down or woman down. And then it's kind of this painful whisking out. And when someone dies in the cell, it's considered a crime scene. And so the cellmate, instead of getting supportive care, gets put into solitary confinement until it is proven that this death happened of natural causes, So their immediate response isn't to offer support, it's to punish.
1: What was motivating inmates to show up for this training?
2: We mostly had lifers. They had been there for quite a while and they had seen a lot of death and they had helped their cellmates die without any support and they wanted more skills around it. So their motivation was to just learn, to be able to show up for each other more fully
1: do you have a sense of what it subsequently
2: meant for inmates who were there at the bedside? What they have shared with me is, in some ways, that they just got to be human, right? It's just like, thank you for letting me be a human being. Thank you for letting me be there for this person that I cared about. You know, it's it's heartbreaking that that has been so withheld. In prison, you're not allowed to have an experience. Or if you do, you have to hide it. You have to nurture it in a way that it doesn't get taken or taken advantage of, or you know, you're also protecting yourself nonstop to survive in this environment. And so, to be given permission to have an interpersonal experience, it, it, again, it just allows you to be human. So that's what they would share, is that they were so grateful that they got to be there for this person when they died, that that person didn't have to be alone and that they got to see it happen.
1: What Lady Bird and her colleagues are doing is so clearly about more than promoting dignity and compassion around dying. It's also about affirming our fundamental humanness in the dying process. But her work also touches on a subject that bears on all of us, and that is grief. She makes the case that to simply exist in our modern world is to grieve or to desperately attempt to pave over
2: that grief. For me, grief and accessing grief comes down to our capacity to inhabit our experience. And if we want to be comfortable and controlled and have things really neat and tidy, you usually need to tighten it up. It needs to be a little bit of a smaller container. So grief can happen in like little moments. There's a certain hallmark thing that you watch, or there's a song that brings up a certain thing, and then you have a very controlled, expected outcome. But the wilder versions of it don't usually go along with knowing. Grief has that offering. When you grieve, you arrive. But you get to arrive in another place.
1: To Ladybird, grief is essential. But our general aversion to creating space for it is part and parcel to the pain and destruction built into our society. To really grieve would also require that we see the pains of our own making and the scars from the history of our country.
2: Why does it seem so very difficult to grieve in America? We just came here conquering and moving past grief and taking over land without any acknowledgement of the impact that we are having. And so it has forced a continual amnesia. Like we have to constantly be not paying attention to our impact because that would require noticing that it actually is mattering, that everything we do is mattering. I think people feel really terrified that once they start That process is never going to end. And I would say, yeah, it won't, but it will transform.
1: But her greater point is that grief also contains catharsis. We might experience it in isolation. We make our losses fiercely unique, precious even. But grief ultimately unites us. What do some of these wilder shores of grief look like?
2: That you recognize that you are connected and that you reconnect, I think, is probably the wildest shore of grief. In grief, there's an initial place of isolation, and in some ways, there's a beauty to holding that close, right? Because when you've been harmed or you've lost something, you want to hold it close to you, and so your grief becomes very personal. And when we share that grief, it's no longer just yours. And so there's this little bit of your heart has come out and now your, your capacity to experience the world again is coming back a little bit. And so the wildest shore of grief to me is when we are back in connection because we realize, oh, I can experience my deep loss and also be held.
1: And so perhaps that's it. The most radical uses of our suffering are simply to come together. There's no grand escape, no transmutation, only the shared facts that unite us. We're born, we die. Along the way, there is pain, but also moments for profound connection, for seeing one another. That's after the break. This show began from my own experience of grief and my own attempts to tame it. My brother died by suicide in 2018, and his death was one of almost 50,000 confirmed suicides that took place just that year in America. They're unfathomable numbers, unfathomable losses when one takes stock of the pains that plague the departed and all those they left behind. I admit that when I reached out to Sunita Puri and to Lady Bird Morgan, A quiet part of myself was hoping to find in our conversations a logic around death, beyond the natural arc of life, whether that's deemed premature or not. But death, at least in my experience, remains a void into which we cast our hope for meaning. Regardless of how we feel about it, it will come for us all. Maybe it's towards grief that I should direct my search for answers. It's another universal, as much as we seek to avoid it or move past it. My talk with Sunita corresponds with the five-year anniversary of my brother's death. Not to the day, exactly, but to the week. And not that the orderly procession of calendar days really matters when it comes to loss. I've come to learn that grief cannot be tamed by time. The pain dims, it becomes less disruptive. But whenever I'm brave enough to stare down this loss, I'm bowled over once again. Is it that I've made no progress in mastering my feelings? That I've failed to advance through the five stages of grief? Or is it that this sort of mastery is also an illusion? Grief might become a less frequent visitor, but it still carries the same enormity. Sunita tells me that the healing qualities of time belong to the same canon of fictions that surround death and dying.
0: I also think resolution is a myth. I think we have this very cliché language around comforting people when they've gone through something horrible like, time heals all wounds, or eventually you'll move on. I think we do that for the same reason that we describe ourselves as fighters against cancers, because these phrases become stock. It's like we're all reading from a bad script, because it's easier to put in a stock character or stock phrase than to write a complicated character or talk about what being a fighter means or talk about what grief means. Maybe it's just like we expect
1: the dying to make peace with their coming end, because that is more comforting to those of us who bear witness. Maybe we expect acceptance because otherwise grief becomes too messy. Messy in terms of tending to someone else's hurt and broken heart, and messy in terms of peering into our own wounds.
0: There's no roadmap for grief. And I think because as a society, we're generally pretty shut down from tending to complex emotions of others, that we have no idea what to do when someone's grieving. And we do what we can. We do the best we can. We bring them casseroles and we send them flowers and we say, I'm here if you need anything, but we're not asking what they need, for example. And so grief is just this huge human thing. It's like, a skin over our lives that's there, imperceptible. We forget about the fact that it's there. It feels like a common thread
1: throughout all of this is that we want to feel connected, want to show up for each other, but don't always know how. We're tied together by life, grief, by death. But we avoid dwelling in it because to stop and really sit with it would be too difficult. Instead, we subject ourselves to what Lady Bird calls continual amnesia and instead look for ways to avoid the pain. Sunita says part of the task of living is simply to be present to these pains.
0: I don't know how much time I have. I don't know how much time people I love have. And so in being around death or considering mortality, considering what that looks like— I think that those things deepen us as human beings because the one thing that binds us all is birth and death. What happens in between those two is what makes our lives unique and different, and we're all on different journeys. But in removing ourselves from the dying and from being around death, we're really losing an opportunity to enrich in our day-to-day lives. And it's not, I don't want to lapse into the cliche of the dying have so much to teach us about living, because I think the dying are just trying to live. I don't think they're trying to teach anybody. I'm not saying that it's easy to contemplate death and dying at all, and the fear and anxiety is justified. But if you look at it long enough then sometimes that fear and anxiety softens and it can open you up to a consideration of what your life means and what you want it to mean.
1: When we started this season, we looked at the question of whether being human means being mortal. And we met people enchanted with the idea that humans can conquer death through science and technology. To some, it seems that these powerful modern tools might actually allow us to change the course of evolution. My own fascination with all of this has less to do with what's possible than what moves people to imagine they can or should break with biology. What inspires their dreams of immortality, of miracles and utopian futures? Ultimately, they're stories, fictions, But they communicate real hopes and anxieties about the present. And they express real fears about death. It would be nice if the act of dying was full of significance. And I'm sure it can be. But I've come to think of that as a nice-to-have rather than a must-have. Because the fact is, we die. Whether or not we're prepared to or accepting of the fact. And yet, it's this unwavering end that gives meaning to the story of our lives. The plot takes shape because it comes to a conclusion. Seeking is written and presented by me, Catherine Rowland, Maya Croft is the senior producer. Our producers are Rob Dozier, Erica Gaida, and Tiffany Walker. This episode was edited by Megan Dietry. Megan Dietry and Lizzie Jacobs are our executive producers. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing and music supervision by Sam Baer.